this morning. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, uh, to pray with me. Father, um, we have your word before us. And uh, as the apostle prays, as truth is delivered, we pray as well that you would enable us to hear this word and to receive it, to believe it, to live it. We may understand, we may comprehend, we may apprehend, take hold of this word and it take hold of us, please. We may live in such a way that brings you glory. This, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ephesians and chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I'd intended just to read the first 13 verses, but I want to read the whole chapter. We'll remain in this chapter for some weeks, but I want us to see um, the entirety of it. So Ephesians and chapter 3, please. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, I read the whole chapter so that you can see something obviously, this passage, but see something in it. Um, that, that Paul digresses in these first 13 verses. He begins, you'll notice, in chapter 3, verse 1, with a little expression, for this reason. But then in verse 14, we hear that again, for this reason. The reason, he wrote, for this reason, a second time, 
is that he never really got to the reason in verses 2 through 13. Uh, he digressed. And so we will digress with him. But there's a lesson here that I don't want to miss just in this. Because, because Paul's pattern, we see it especially as he writes to this church in Ephesus. Is he lays out truth and then he prays. He lays out truth and then he prays. Notice back, turn back a page to um, chapter 1, verse 15. We see that expression again, for this reason. And after the for this reason, he tells them what he's praying for them. In the same way, in verse 14 of chapter 3, after the expression for this reason, he tells them what he's praying. That was his intent when he started chapter 3. For this reason, he was going to tell them what he had prayed for them. But, but he, got to, he got a little sidetracked, and we'll get to the sidetrack in a minute. But, 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 in, but, but he's going to pray for them. And, and so my point is that after he teaches them this great truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, when he lays out all the blessings that we have because we've been chosen in Christ, the blessing that before the Lord were holy and blameless, the blessing that... that, that in love, he predestined us for adoption, that we belonged to him, that we were adopted as his children. Um, the blessing that we've been redeemed, that he's bought us, that he's freed us from the power of sin and death. The fact that um, we're forgiven our sins, the blessing. The blessing that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee that all that has been promised to us will really come to us. After he, he tells them all those blessings, then he prays for them. And what he prays for them, essentially, is that, that, that they know this, that they really get it. He says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that, that as you may see it, that you may see the truth that I've just laid out for you, that you may know the hope to which you've been called, that you may know the riches of this glorious inheritance, that, that you may know the power that is toward all who believe. He says, I want, I want you to be able to get it. And the same thing here uh, in chapter 3. After he's laid out this wonderful truth, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we know it. He says, we've been dead in our trespasses and sins. We've been enslaved to the world and to the devil and to our own sinful natures. But yet, uh, God because he loves us, has, has made us alive together with Christ and seated him with hev- in heavenly places. And what a great blessing. And he says, by grace you've been saved through faith, not by way of your own works. And, and you've been saved so that, as a one who's the workmanship of Christ, you can do the good works which you prepared in advance for us to do. What a great blessing. And then he goes on to say, now Gentiles, remember, what this means is that you're full citizens in the kingdom of God. No longer do, you, do we need the theocracy of ancient Israel, of Israel. No, no need to go through Israel to be favored by God. But, but, but now it's through Christ for all people. So you're full citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're fellow members of this household of God. And together you're the very dwelling place of God for you're his temple. And he says, now, now, what I want to do, and eventually then, by the time we get to verse 14, he's going to lay out what he prays for them. He says, I want you to, to be strengthened with power in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may know the love of Christ, that you may, how does he put it, be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a wonderful expression. We'll get there in about a month. But, but that you become to mature, you come to maturity, you see. 
So, so he says, to know this is to come to maturity. So I've taught you this. Now I'm praying that you really see it. And the lesson there for us is that as we read the scripture, we must always be praying. As we read it, we're getting the truth. We're always praying. That's why I pray before I read it, so that God will help us to see it and to, to comprehend it and to apprehend it, that we may grab a hold of it, and then it may grab a hold of us, you see, and then we really get it. So, so that's just a, a little sermonette there for Christianettes. But uh, it's just a, a, little, a little piece there not to, not, not, not to miss. But Paul uh, digresses here. Now, I wonder why he does that. Why does he digress? Why doesn't he just get with his prayer? Why, don't, why do we have verses 2 through 13? Why doesn't he just start with verse 14? Well, that would be odd, but he could number it number one. And uh, as they, the numbers of the verses did, and, and say, okay, this is it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Why, why does he digress there? Well, I think this. But he's a pastor, first and foremost. Oh, he's an apostle and all of that. But he cares for these people. We need to realize that when Paul's writing these letters, he's not writing, first and foremost, theological treatises. Now, they become that for us. We get that. But that wasn't his intention, first and foremost. He's not writing literary masterpieces here. It's something that, 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 that literary critics are going to hold up and say, this is how you write letters, or this is how you write. That isn't his point. His point is to help them. He's there. Apostle, yes, but he's their pastor. He, he loves them and he wants to help them, encourage them and strengthen them and establish them in the faith. And, and so there's something to what he says here as he begins that causes him to say, whoa, 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 I have to, I have to talk about something before I get to my prayer. There is one more thing. So what is it? Notice verse one. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then you'll notice, at least in the translation I'm reading, the English Standard Version, there's a dash. It's sort of like, well, I've got, to, I've got to digress here a minute. I can't get right to what I was going to get to. And it's this expression, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, that seems in some sense to sidetrack him. He sort of, he pauses at that expression. And he pauses at that expression, I think because he's their pastor, because he realizes that, that the fact that he's in prison might affect them in a particular way. So we see at the end of this digression in verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, he, he's, he, when he uses the word prison, <laughs> um, and he's in prison as he writes this, that he, he thinks perhaps this will affect them. They'll begin to worry and be anxious. For me, for their own lives, perhaps, this pastor's heart. Now we know that Paul had been uh, called to be an apostle <clears throat> to the Gentiles. When, when he was um, uh, saved, when the Lord Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus and he it's described for us in Acts and, and chapter 9. Uh, ultimately, he's given this word by this man, Ananias, who comes to him in verse 14 of Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, go, this is to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So, so he's going to go not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. And then he adds, verse 16, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
And then later, as Paul's defending himself, uh, in Acts 26, uh, before uh, King Agrippa, uh, this Roman leader, um, he explains to him how the Lord Jesus came to him. In Acts 26, verse 16, or verse 15, and Jesus said, and I said to, to him, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, these Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul was clearly an apostle sent by Jesus to go outside of Israel and to go into these non-Jewish, these Gentile nations to speak the truth of the Lord. Now, we know the progression of the gospel. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth, and they were to go. And you remember that when he meets with them prior to his ascension, uh, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. They'll receive power from on high so that they may be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. So, so we, we get the picture from Jesus that this gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth, outside of Jerusalem, if you will, uh, to the Gentile nations. But, but that doesn't happen for a while. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the, the apostles. Peter preaches, and when he, he preaches, he preaches essentially to a bunch of Jewish men who were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And 3,000 of them come to faith. Now, these are Jewish men from all over the world, all over the known world. So you get the sense that, that this gospel is going to go everywhere from these people. But, but, but they're Jewish men. And so we haven't really seen it go until Acts chapter 8 when there's a persecution in Jerusalem, ironically, at the hand of this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And there's this, this persecution that comes in Jerusalem. And so, so the believers in Jerusalem are, are scattered everywhere and say so they go out. And, and some of them go into Samaria, which was an area that comprised a group of people that was not very um, favorable to Israelites. But Philip, you remember, goes to the Samaritans and he preaches there and, and, and people come, come to faith. And then it takes a vision, you remember, to the apostle Peter to be able to, to, to convince him that he needs to go to the Gentiles. So he goes to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, and preaches the gospel. People are saved. And then, in the midst of all that, this Saul of Tarsus comes to faith on the road to Damascus through this confrontation with Jesus. And he's sent out. So that's Paul. He's an apostle, clearly, um, to the Gentiles. But Paul's life is one of persecution at times. In fact, he was in Jerusalem and, and he was accused by the Jewish authorities that he was with a Gentile who was a believer in Jesus and he took him into the temple in a place where he shouldn't be. And so the Jewish authorities got very upset with him. There was a riot and, and the Roman authorities intervened and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, and they came and they examined Paul and went back to the Jewish authorities and said, we don't have any reason to hold him. They got upset. And Paul appealed to Caesar because not only was he an Israelite, but he was a 
Roman citizen by birth. And so they said, all right, let's go to Rome. So Paul's on his way to Rome. And Paul gets to Rome and there's, he's, in, he's in prison. House arrest chained. And he writes to them. But he's concerned that they'll know about his imprisonment and they'll be concerned. This isn't the first time Paul's concerned about such things. Turn to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3. I'm sorry, in chapter, yeah, chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul writes to this church and he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. In other words, he, he was afraid for the people in Thessalonica, the church there, that because he was imprisoned, that they would be afflicted, that they would be, uh, their faith would be affected badly. And he says that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you, you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it had come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, Paul was afraid when he was in prison that other believers would hear about it and Satan would come and tempt them to lose their faith. Tempt them to think, wait a minute. If Jesus is really Lord and Paul is his apostle. Why can't the Lord keep him out of prison? And if this kind of thing is going to happen to him, what's going to happen to us? And, 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 and if he's in prison, perhaps he really isn't an apostle. And if he's not really an apostle, then this, this gospel that he's preached to us probably isn't true. And so why are we believing any of this? And so that was Paul's concern. That was his concern to the church in Thessalonica. That's why he sent Timothy to say, shore them up in the faith and tell them, you know, tell, remind them. I told them this was going to happen. Or, or remind them that we're destined for this kind of thing. And, and so now he has the same concern for these believers in Ephesus and others who will read this letter that they would be somehow tempted by the tempter. This idea of imprisonment's a real thing. Some of you may know we have an EPC missionary, Andrew Brunson, who's been in prison in Turkey since 2016. He was arrested after the coup attempt that was taking place in Turkey and, and, um, and charged with all kinds of false charges, espionage and, 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 and wanting to overthrow the government of Turkey and all that kind of thing. And Andrew's simply been a pastor in Turkey for 23 years. Um, for a long time, he wasn't charged with anything. Finally, he was charged. There was a trial that began on April 16th, and now it's been postponed till May the 7th. He's still in prison, been in solitary confinement this whole time. It's real, you see. And I suppose that some missionaries would have looked at that and thought, oh, yeah, I heard about this kind of thing could happen. <laughs> But, but, but I didn't think it was going to happen, really. And perhaps their faith has been shaken. Or, or the children of missionaries see this kind of thing and go, this could happen to my parents, it could happen to us. And, and so, you see, there's a, there's a real need for us to begin thinking and to really think this through. How do we understand this kind of persecution? Jesus said, blessed are those who persecuted 
for my sake. And Jesus told his disciples, they hated me, they'll hate you. We know there are seasons and places where that doesn't seem to be the case, that Christians seem to get along quite just fine, but we also know there are seasons and places where that isn't true. It certainly isn't true for our brother Andrew in Turkey at the moment and others throughout, throughout the world. Paul even said, as he wrote to Timothy, he said, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, you see. Just warning him. And, uh, and we see it. It's, 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 it's real, you see. And so it gives Paul some pause as he, as he writes. For us, uh, we're not in prison, I don't suppose, but, but we see other believers in difficulty, suffering, if you will. And we look at other believers that we've known who've been faithful to the Lord, who love him, who pray, who desire to live a godly life, who have lived from what we could tell a godly life and they've been in church and they've given of themselves and of their money and of their time and all of that they've served and, and yet we see they go through difficulties. Difficulties happen in our lives, whether it be illness, whether it be discouragement and even depression, whether it be financial difficulties, whether tragedies even strike in the context of the lives of believers and it gives us pause where we begin to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is Lord, why is this happening to his people? Why is that person suffering? And if we look at that person's life, I do this often, I look at a particular Christian's life and I see the suffering that they're going through and I go, if they're suffering, I'm toast. If it's about godliness and faithfulness and all of that. And so we need to be able to think well about how do we live in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of even threats, in the midst of discouragement and disappointments and real pain? How do we live? How do we turn our mind around that? What can really help us? Well, it's this digression. We can see, I think, <clears throat> how it is that Paul understands his life. Just in this opening sentence, this is all I'll get to today, I'm sorry, but just this opening sentence where Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, what's, what's fascinating here is Paul's a prisoner of Rome. Everybody knows that. I mean, it's not that he's living a fantasy life here. It's not that he'd forgotten that he's chained to a Roman soldier, even though he's under house arrest. It isn't that he's forgotten all of that. But, but notice how he puts it. He could have very well put it. I'm a prisoner in Rome. And he would have been 100% accurate. That would have been true. But he doesn't twist it that way. He doesn't spin it that way. He doesn't understand it that way. He has a, he has a whole other way of looking at this. He says, I'm a prisoner of, of Christ Jesus. And you see, his point is that his whole life is, is in Christ. Whatever his circumstance, wherever he is, he's in the sphere of Christ. He's in Christ. You see, he understands himself that way always. He introduces himself as apostle of Jesus Christ, as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ. His whole identity is Christ. He knows that the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord. That was part of our profession of faith this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's already, he's already laid out that he's ruling and reigning in chapter 1. 
In verse uh, 20, he says that Jesus is see- that the, the Father has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's, he's ruling and reigning over, over all things. Paul knew that. He knew that he was... He was in Christ. That was his identity. A number of years ago, I met a man who was telling me about his conversion and coming to faith in Christ. And he was older. Well, he was younger than I am now, but he was older to me then. And he, he, he put it like this. He said, I've only been in Christ for five years. And that struck me as a little odd at the, uh, for someone to describe his conversion that way. Usually people say, well, I, 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 I trusted Christ or I received Christ or whatever. You know, I was converted. But he said, I've been in Christ for the last five years. Now, he could have said, I was chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world, but I just became aware of it five years ago. That would have been a bit cumbersome, but accurate nonetheless. But, I, but, but what I appreciated about how he put it was that he understood that his identity was Christ. That in entering into the sphere of person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was under Christ's rule and authority in his life. And Paul knew that. And so he understood every circumstance of his life to be in Christ. Therefore, he could say, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm reminded of, of, of when Jesus was before Pilate. Remember this wonderful scene? Pilate's just, you get the sense, scratching his head over Jesus. Why won't you cooperate with me? Because if you cooperate with me, I can set you free. And so he says to Jesus, don't you know that I have authority to free you? And Jesus, in essence, said, no, you don't. You only have the authority that's been given to you. If we looked at that situation from the outside, we didn't know any of that. And you said, who's an authority here? We'd say, oh, Pilate. But Jesus could see more. He knew it wasn't Pilate at all. He was on on trial because of his father. That put him there. And Paul knew he was in prison. It wasn't some sort of arbitrary thing by the Romans. It wasn't even a purposeful thing of the Romans. It was of Christ Jesus. Because he belonged to Christ and Jesus is Lord over every circumstance and everything. And so, you see, Paul wanted them with him to look beyond what had appeared and see deep within, to see what was really, really the case in all of that. And he knew that just because Rome had a reason for imprisoning him, that Jesus must have a reason for him to be in prison. And if Jesus had a reason for him to be in prison, that was sufficient, if you will, for, for Paul. Paul would say, don't worry, uh, the gospel isn't going to be thwarted because I'm in prison. In fact, from the same prison situation, he wrote to the church in Philippi. And here's what he wrote in Philippians. We have it in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, so so my being in prison isn't stopping anything at all. It's actually going further than we would ever, you see, 
have imagined. Don't be discouraged. Of course, we're not in prison. Uh, How does this really help us? Well, it helps us, I think, to understand that our identity is in Christ. And whatever circumstance in which we find ourselves, to realize that he is still the Lord, you see. He's the Lord over every circumstance. And, and the question that we must ask ourselves then is, does he really love us? Does he really love us to put us in this difficult circumstance? Does he really love us? And, and that was Paul's point throughout. It was his stress. He, he, he told them, he said, verse 7 of chapter 1, in him, I'm sorry, uh, in love, verse 5, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This was a result of the love of God. If you ask Paul, why are you you a believer? He says, well, because I've been loved by God. I was was on my way to destruction, eternal destruction. but, But God intervened in my life and Jesus came to me. Why did he do that? He didn't do that because I was lovable. He didn't do that because I was doing all the right things. He did that because he loved me. Why did he love you? And I think Paul would scratch his head and go, I don't know. He just did. But all of this comes, you see, from the very love of God. And then in chapter 2, he lays it out for all of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. And yet notice how he puts it in verse 4. He said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, but God being rich in mercy. And please just put this expression in your mind. Because of the great love with which he loved me. Because of the great love with which he loved me. And you see, in the midst of a circumstance, in the midst of Paul being in prison, he had given up his freedom, he had given up his social standing, he had given up his political rights, he had given up, even in in some circles, his reputation among the churches. In fact, you remember when we worked our way through 2 Corinthians some time ago, we said the reason Paul was writing 2 Corinthians is because the church in Corinth was questioning his apostleship, because he was always being beaten and thrown in prison. And and so so here's Paul thinking, they're not even going to trust me anymore uh, because of this circumstance. And so all of that was on his mind in addition to the pain of it. He's chained up to a Roman soldier all the time. He had been beaten. This isn't a pleasant experience. He says, no, he's Lord. I'm his prisoner. And he loves me. So I'm here, you see. So I'm here. Now, that didn't mean that Paul couldn't pray to get out of it. It didn't mean that others couldn't pray for him. It didn't mean he couldn't defend himself. He could speak that which is true. But he didn't need to do it out of discouragement and distress. Or even bitterness. You know, there's this expression. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion, and he was praying Peter, James, and John were asleep, and he was praying. Uh, Mark has it like this. Mark has Jesus saying, all things are possible for you. And we know that, don't we? When we're going through difficulties, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's relational, whatever the difficulty is that we're going through, we know 
that all things are possible for God. He could, he could lift us out of this circumstance in a moment. And sometimes we think, well, if it's possible for you and you love me, why are you keeping me here? And he would respond, it is because I love you that I'm keeping you here. And it's because I love others that I'm keeping you here. And so when Jesus prayed, if it's possible, then take this cup. The Lord said, no, it's not really possible. You've got to go through this experience. You've got to go through this to achieve the reason for which you came, to save my people, your people, from their sins. So all things are possible, but, but, but this is impossible. Not if we're going to achieve this end. We've got to go this. We've got to go this way, you see, all things or possible with him. But, and Paul would know it's possible for the Lord to free me. I mean, he's freed others. Remember, he freed Peter. Uh, when Peter was in prison, they just sang and boom. An earthquake came and he was free. And free. So we knew he, he could be free of this, but, but the Lord didn't free him. And so he said, he loves me and he's Lord. And so here I am. So he must have a purpose and it must be a good purpose. So I will trust him in the midst of all of this. I remember a number of years ago now when Karen was in the hospital in a coma and I came to church that Sunday and Rick was preaching and he was preaching about the woman at the well and he had this expression and he said that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, you know, he didn't. I mean, he ought to be one to Galilee without going through Samaria. In fact, most of the Jews did because they didn't want to go through Samaria in order to, 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 to get to Galilee. But, but the scripture said that he had to go through Samaria. And Rick made this point and, and he said he had to if he was going to meet the woman at the well. He had to if he was going to teach her and his disciples the lesson that he could only teach through meeting this woman at the well. And so he had to go through Jerusalem and, and I began, or had to go through Samaria. And I began to think, yes, of course, we... There are times when we have to go through this. We have to go through this. I remember uh, many decades ago, I called my parents and was talking to them about I was going to go to seminary. And I was 31 years old, so a little bit out of the norm. And and, uh, my mom said, yeah, I know. I said, what do you mean you know? And she said, well, I've been praying this for most of your life. And I said, you know, it would have been nice if you had told me that I could have done this a lot earlier. <laughs> Not had to go through what I had gone through to get to this point in my life. And she said, no, 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 no. You had to go through everything you've gone through in order to get to this point. So now you're here. Go. We had to do it. Paul says, I'm in prison. I'm in prison because of Jesus. He, he loves me and he's Lord. Therefore, there must be a reason here. This must be really good. Now, Paul would know in the context of his own life, uh, the various goodness that this would, that this would bring to him. You remember in, in, when he wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, he says, power is perfected in weakness. He had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times that the Lord take it away. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. And here's Paul in prison, about as weak as a person can be. There he is in prison, and, and he knows that Jesus, as being Lord, will still rule and reign in such a way that Paul will see the very power of God. In fact, in Philippians in chapter 3, notice how Paul puts it, uh, verse, uh, verse 10, his prayer is that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. The very power that saved him. That's the power that brings forgiveness of sins. The very power that rules and reigns over sin and death. Paul says, I want to know that. He says, well, I can know it through suffering. That is when everything else is ripped away. I can see the power of God. You know, I think that I live dependent upon God. And I do, in a certain measure, right? We all live dependent upon God. But I'm never sure of that until certain things get stripped away. You see, I might simply be living dependent upon my income. I might simply be living dependent upon my health. I might simply be living dependent upon my intellect. I might simply be living dependent upon my friends, those I love. And yet when those are taken away, then faith is tested. And we ask the question, upon whom do I depend? Upon what do I depend? And Paul in prison is going, listen, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. But I'm alive. I have absolutely nothing. I have no influence anywhere. I have no power over anybody. And yet the gospel is, is going out. I'm writing these letters. This is so cool. I'm writing these letters to people. And he didn't know about it. So I don't know what he knew, but we're still reading them. Right? It's the word of God's going out all over the place for ever. As weak as he could possibly be, there we see the very power of God. And he know that, knows that this would, would keep him. This psalm I read, Psalm 119, is one I've fed off for all my life that I can remember. But verse 67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Now, Paul wasn't going astray, but affliction brings our weakness up close and personal. And we go, where do I go in the midst of this? Upon whom do I depend now? I've got no one to call. I've got no good ideas. I have no strength. I have no money. I have no standing. Who do I go to now? Oh, I go to your word. It's good for me, he says in verse 71, that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. But then notice also, just quickly, that Paul says in verse 13 of Ephesians 3 that, that this, what I'm suffering, is for your glory. In verse 1, he says, I'm here on behalf of you Gentiles. In verse 13, he says, this is for your glory. This is for your good that I'm, that I'm suffering. You know, one of the things that takes place when people suffer that messes with us more than sometimes we're willing to admit is, is that we think that when we're suffering, we're being completely unproductive. We can't really help anybody. And we need to realize, especially as believers, that we've been wired to help other people. That's the way we've been wired. If you're feeling miserable, this isn't always true. But sometimes it's true. We're feeling miserable. It's probably because we've been living too self-centeredly. It's a really good thing to try when you're having difficulties. Well, what can I do for somebody else in the midst of this? And again, it's not pop psychology. It's, it's true. Remember, Jesus came, said, I, I came not to, 
be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He says, here's the example I want to give to you. Wash each other's feet. Not literally, I hope. But, I don't want you touching my feet. But, 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 but to help each other. This is to, to love each other. As I've, as I've loved you, you see. That's how we're really wired. And, and so the question for Paul, what would have been so discouraging to him, is to think in the midst of this imprisonment, I'm completely unproductive. But he wasn't. He wasn't. In fact, and I really hate to do this to you because it might put a song in your head that you don't want in your head. But this is just preparing you for, v- for VBS because you're going to have a bunch of VBS songs in your head throughout the summer. But, but, but in the movie, be- the cartoon, I guess it is, animated feature, Beauty and the Beast, there's this song, Be Our Guest. And I Googled the words. Just this one expression. You know, it's this, this time where the, all the utensils come alive and they start to serve and they say, be our guest. And this is, I hate the gospel according to Disney, but this really uh, is true. Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. That's really true, you see. And one of the most difficult things in the midst of affliction is this feeling. That I'm not serving. The last, or the next line in this, he's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Right? That's true. We're not whole unless we have a soul to wait upon. But see, Paul knew that even in the midst of his suffering, that he was being productive. On the one hand, he said, I'm filling up the afflictions of Christ. In other words, in order to bring the gospel to you, it's causing me to suffer. But that's okay because I'm bringing the gospel to you. That's, that's what I desire to do. But again, in this Psalm 119, two verses just to, just to cling to. To show that even in your affliction, that this is for not just you, but for somebody else as well. When we go through affliction and difficulties, it's not just to purify us. It is but also for others as well. The psalmist writes this, verse 74 of Psalm 119. He says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Now, not rejoice in his sufferings. Uh, There are other psalms about that. But they'll see me and rejoice. What are they going to rejoice in when they see this psalmist in difficulty? Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. See, that's it. It's easy for us to live in the faith, if you will, when everything's going well for us all. We look at each other and we're all just pretty and happy and wealthy and fed and all that. And we look at each other and we go, this is great, this Christian life. But there's this dis-ease about that. Because we're all thinking, what will happen, though, if something bad happens? And we know it's going to. What's going to happen when one of us gets sick? What's going to happen when one of us dies? What's going to happen when one of us loses his or her job? What if this happens when our kids go astray? What's going to happen when our marriages get difficult? What's going to happen in the midst of that? And in the midst of that, what we need to see in each other, this is why we need each other as community, what we need to see in each other is that you are still maintaining faith in the midst of that. And you might think you're being completely unproductive because you're just debilitated by the situation in which you find yourself, whether it's an illness or a difficulty or whatever, and you think, I'm being completely... No, you're not. If Paul hadn't written a word in prison, he still would have been productive if he maintained faith there. And why? Because other people would see him and say, look at what he's going through. But he's being sustained. So when I go through such a thing, I'll be sustained. 
And that's a gift that we give to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to pretend like everything's fine when it's not. That doesn't mean to, you need to pretend that your faith is strong when it isn't. It means you just have to be honest and continue to pray and continue to trust. And other people see that and they go, oh, yes. And then verse 79 says, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. In other words, let those who fear you come to me in the midst of my affliction and I'll tell them, God, about how you sustain me. Edith Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's wife, wrote a book aptly entitled Affliction. Um, And she relates a story there of a man that she knew who was a renowned surgeon, spent his life healing. And he himself was afflicted with cancer and was dying. His death took a while to come. And so in the midst of the months in which he laid in bed, uh, there he was. He couldn't do what he had done and serve as he had served. He couldn't help as he had helped. And he was a believer and, and she visited him. And he once confessed to her, he says, tears in his eyes, I feel so unproductive. Like I can help no one. And she said, oh, no, you've never been more productive in your life. Because everyone knows that you're here and everyone knows your testimony. God is sustaining you even here. That may be more help than all the people you've operated on and given them back their health. Because they know that one day they won't have it. And what will they have? They'll have what you have right now. Faith that sustains you in the midst of this. You see, Paul said, I know that Jesus is Lord and I'm a prisoner of Jesus for your sake. That kept him from becoming discouraged. It kept him from becoming bitter. That enabled him to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us. I suppose these words could sound crazy to anyone but a believer in Jesus. So I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope to which we've been called, that we may know the glorious inheritance that is ours, and that we know the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that you would indeed strengthen us with your power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may know the love of Christ, and you may fill us with all the fullness of God. And this I pray in Jesus' name.